Every day when I get home from work, I feel so frustrated. The boss is a jerk. And I get my sticks and go out to the shed and I pound on that drum like it was the boss's head. Well, I hope that doesn't describe too many of our listeners' workplaces. Certainly does not describe mine. Um, But for all too many Americans, they don't want to bang on their boss's head. They want to bang on an occupational license because what they want to be doing has a license to work. And that's what we're going to be talking about today on Short Circuit, your podcast on the Federal Courts of Appeals. I'm your host, Anthony Sanders, director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute for Justice. We're recording this on Thursday, December 8th, 2022, and this is a special short circuit because it is all about being licensed to work and how that often doesn't make any sense. With me today is one of the co-authors of a new report the Institute for Justice has just put out, uh, Licensed to Work. It is the third edition, so the third in the tri- in the continuing trilogy. Uh, there's a lot of new stuff in this edition. There's also some good news. Um, there's a lot of work to be done still, though, on making it um, not quite as onerous to be licensed to work. And so we're going to be talking about some of the good news, some of the bad news, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this subject, you you will be able to uh, learn about some of this from uh, from the, the basics. And then also, we'll be talking about what else can be done, including, of course, us being the Institute for Justice in the judicial arena. And we have some good news there, too. We're going to be talking about a recent victory for the right to earn a living in Pennsylvania, and we have one of the lawyers from that case with us today to talk about that recent decision. So uh, we'll be introducing both of them here. First, uh, I'm very pleased to introduce our Senior Director of Strategic Research. She is one of the co-authors, again, of License to Work, does a whole lot of other things at the Institute for Justice, and um, she is not a lawyer, so because she doesn't drink that Kool-Aid, she can kind of see the unseen, to steal a phrase, about a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that we at IJ are involved with, and we very much appreciate that uh, um, that perspective. And so I'm pleased to uh, welcome, for the first time on Short Circuit, Lisa Nepper. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Anthony. I'm excited to join the Short Circuit crew and, and talk a little data with, with the lawyers. Yes, yes. And so there, there won't be too many numbers, but there's like <laughs> lawyer-friendly numbers or layperson-friendly numbers. And for the rest of our, our non-lawyer listeners who actually can do math, um, you know, you'll, you'll be just fine. Uh, also joining me is the lead attorney from that case I just referenced uh, in Pennsylvania that we talked about a couple years ago at a preliminary stage of the case, but it is now a final victory for our client. And that is IJ favorite uh, on short circuit, Josh Windham. Josh, welcome back. Well, the pleasure is mine as always. Well, Lisa, let's first turn to you and license to work three. Now, Again, this is the third in a trilogy. So, you know, there are a lot of good trilogies out there, Lord of the Rings, uh, Back to the Future. Uh, but there are some where, you know, the middle of the second movie, you start like, why did I come to this? And then you don't even bother watching the third. So tell our listeners, like, what is different about this one? Why should they care? And also, um, for those of us who haven't 
seen any of the movies, um, what is licensed work all about? Absolutely. Well, let me start with what License to Work is all about and, and what is this endeavor that we've been uh, undertaking for over a decade now. Uh, so first, an occupational license is, in brief, a government permission slip to work. And to get one, you are typically going to have to clear a number of hurdles. You'll have to undertake a prescribed amount of education or training pass a test or two or three or four, uh, almost always pay some fees. And as short circuit listeners likely know, licensing isn't just for doctors and lawyers anymore. It's for people who trim nails and hair, who do landscaping, interior design. Famously, in the case of Louisiana and two IJ cases, florists uh, require a license because floral arranging is, of course, so dangerous to public health and safety. A lot of infected dirt out there, said one A one lot judge. of infected dirt out there. So all of this licensing has, unfortunately, negative consequences, most obviously for the people that IJ represents, people who are shut out of jobs, out of career paths that they could otherwise succeed and thrive in. Uh, but the effects go far beyond that as well. Naturally, by limiting competition, licensing raises prices and reduces consumer choice for the rest of us. And, and this isn't just theory. This is, uh, these are among the most consistent findings of economics research on licensing. Higher costs, reduced consumer choice, and reduced employment in licensed occupations. And the costs really add up across the economy. By one estimate, licensing costs our economy as many as 2 million jobs, up to 197 billion, that's billion with a B, in misallocated resources. And by that, I mean the, the sand in the gears, the costs to our overall economy of people not being able to do, not being free to do those things that they are best at doing. And there's evidence that these costs fall hardest on particular groups, women, minorities, and immigrants among them. Now, unfortunately, against these costs, you'd think there'd be substantial benefits, but that's just not borne out by the research. You'd think that licensing would weed out incompetence. It would weed out those people who just can't do the job, thereby raising the level of quality and protecting public health and safety. But the scholarly evidence here is really quite mixed. And that suggests there's actually quite a lot of room to roll back or even eliminate a lot of these rules and to do so without compromising public health and safety. So at IJ, we are interested in how these rules and regulations affect those on the lowest rungs of the economic ladder. And so over a decade ago, we embarked on this crazy trilogy. <laughs> um, and it involves documenting just how hard it is to get a license for a large sample of low-income occupations, 102 in all. And nothing like this had ever been done before when we put out the first edition back in 2012. So that is what became License to Work. And our findings continue to be eye-opening to this day. In, in this new third edition just released, we found that it is, in fact, quite hard 
to get a lot of these licenses. On average, across all of the licenses in our sample, it takes nearly a year of education and experience, passing at least one exam, and $295 in fees. Now, that's a lot of time and money spent earning a license instead of earning a living. And that's especially true for lower-income workers who are most likely to enter these fields. And our figures don't include a lot of the hidden costs, like tuition for required schooling or income foregone while training instead of working. And these costs can be quite high. In another recent study, we found that cosmetology school costs, on average, $16,000. A lot of students, most students take on debt in order to afford that. But unfortunately, it rarely pays off in terms of future earnings. And in fact, researchers have, have pointed to cosmetology school as one of the worst returns on investment out there. Wow. But it's mandated by every state. And cosmetology, barbering, and related fields, these are some of the most common and burdensome licenses that we study in License to Work. So these barriers are substantial, and and that is one of the core findings of License to Work, and it's remained true throughout all three editions. One of the other core findings is that these barriers are widespread. In this third edition, we identified more than 2,700 licenses across the 50 states and District of Columbia, and the 102 occupations that we're looking at. So for lower-income Americans, there's a lot of licensing, and it's pretty onerous. But we also found, as you alluded to, Anthony, it often simply doesn't make sense. So let me talk about a couple of ways in which that's the case. Most of the occupations that we studied, 88% are unlicensed in at least one state. And in the past five years, 14 of them have been delicensed by at least one state. That is, one state or more has said, you know what, we don't really need to be licensing this occupation. And yet other states continue to erect these barriers to honest work. So if these jobs can be done safely somewhere, perhaps they can be done safely elsewhere as well. What are a few of those licenses that have been uh, discarded Absolutely. Makeup artist, auctioneer, painting contractor, interior designer, locksmith. These are things that states are starting to conclude we just don't need to license them. Now, at the same time, it's not just free market economists or think tanks who are saying a lot of these barriers aren't necessary. Earlier this year, we did a different study where we looked at what are called sunrise reviews. And this is a process where government bureaucrats examine proposals for licensing. Most often these proposals, as you might expect, as short-circuit listeners might expect, come from within the occupation themselves. It's the occupation saying, regulate us, please. They have an interest in limiting. We want to be seen as professionals. Please license us. And we want to be seen as professional. They're seeking the professional stature that they believe a license confers. Hang out with too many lawyers and doctors, I think. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And, and also likely the uh, economic benefits of, of limiting competition. So sunrise laws and processes are an attempt to say, well, 
okay, we understand why you want to be licensed, but is there good evidence suggesting that there's a legitimate public health and safety concern here? And even if there is, is licensing the right solution? Or might there be a lesser form of regulation, inspections, deceptive trade practice acts, or even just mere registration that would be better suited to any identified problem? So we looked at hundreds of these studies And we found that most of them found licensing was a bad idea, (laughs) including for 13 of the occupations that we look at in license to work. Things like interior design, athletic trainer, and and so on and so forth. Uh, So there are a lot of good reasons to think that a lot of the licensing uh, laws that we looked at just aren't well-supported, well-grounded in evidence. There's also a real disconnect between the training required, and the risk to public health and safety. Uh, One of the the more cited findings, I think, from License to Work is that on average, an entry-level emergency medical technician needs about a month's worth of training in order to offer life-saving care in an emergency, while cosmetologists need about a year's worth of training to cut and style hair. It's amazing. So that, in a nutshell, is what License to Work is about. So, Lisa, I have a question for you. Uh, in the original version of License to Work, there was a statistic that's kind of sticking out in my mind about how, you know, so many decades ago, uh, you know, one out of every however many Americans needed a license to work, and now the number is is X, right? So what are those figures today? And kind of can you remind our listeners what they used to be? Sure. So that's actually not from License to Work um, originally. That's from um, fantastic work done by economist Morris Kleiner, who's really the the godfather of uh, occupational licensing research. Um, and uh, at the University of Minnesota, I was at the University of Minnesota. That's right. Um, and yes, so the the number remains around one in four today. Estimates. Vary, but it's about one in four American workers need a license today. Um, and our best estimate is that back in the 1950s, that figure was about one in 20. So it's grown quite a bit. When the Obama administration did a, an analysis of those figures back in 2017, they found that most of that growth couldn't be explained by growth in licensed occupations, which is to say it's not because there's more doctors and lawyers, right? It's because there's more licenses, or at least primarily because we're licensing more jobs than we used to. And you mentioned the Obama administration. I mean, in the last few years, we've also had the Trump administration criticizing occupational licensing. So is it fair to say this is a pretty bipartisan issue at this point, or are there any skeptics out there that we should know about? <laughs> um, I think it's absolutely a bipartisan issue. I mean, two of the states that I've seen uh, do the most to reduce licensing barriers are Utah and Vermont. Uh, these are not states that we ordinarily put in the same sentence ideologically or politically. Um, and yet they've both shown a strong interest in reducing and eliminating licensing barriers. What are some of the other uh, some what's some of the other good news from uh, license work three that we didn't have in say in license work two? Yep, I think that's one of the things that's most exciting about this edition because it's the third. We have a better ability to look at trends over time, 
And that's where we start to see some good news. Compared to five years ago when we put out the second edition, there are actually slightly fewer licenses on the books. Um, and that's a reversal of the prior trend between 2012 and 2017, which is the first and second editions of License to Work, more licenses were created than removed. That's starting to change. The numbers are small, to be sure, but it's starting to change. On top of that, we saw that about 20% of the licenses that we studied have actually become less burdensome in this time. Uh, Utah and Arkansas have done a lot to reduce barriers in the construction trades, things like painting, drywall contracting, and other specialty uh, trades. And about 30 states have uh, reduced barriers in the barbering, cosmetology, and other beauty fields, makeup artistry, um, manicuring, things like that. Um, And so we're starting to see it inch downward. And what so for for licenses that aren't just completely um, repealed? What what are most of those changes? Are they are the the educational requirements a little less onerous? The fees lower? What what does it tend to be? So it's a mixed bag for sure, um, but encouragingly, we saw a lot of change on the education and experience metric. So reduction of required hours or reduction of um, years of training required. So in the trades, it's often an apprenticeship where you have to apprentice under another licensed um, contractor for two, four, or even more years. We're starting to see those types of numbers come down. And that's important because those are the really the biggest barriers. Right. And I mean, one one huge barrier I see is that, and I'm glad you mentioned the apprentices, is that in a lot of occupations, and this is one good thing I think about the, some of the, the how the trades work, is you, you can do your learning on the job. So although you won't be getting, you know, maybe a, a, a full uh, journeyman's wage, you'll be getting some kind of apprentice raid, wage while you're learning. Whereas if you just go to say beauty school and you're not you you don't have a job you're you're foregoing that lost income of that time you're paying that tuition, um, and so you're not earning a living while you're working. Um, and although you know school is is fine in a lot of ways, like I, I learned some things in law school. Of course, we all learned things in our undergrad uh, uh, time at college. There's a place for that, uh, but the best way to learn about a job is doing the job. And so if you can make money while you're learning, um, that's that's a real benefit versus uh, having to put you into um, uh, into a year or two of schooling when maybe you could be doing that when you're actually working for somebody. That's right. And, you know, with cosmetology school, it's even worse than that because cosmetology schools will have students work on live clients as part of their training. Right, and they can't be paid but for But they that. don't get paid, right? <laughs> right. So they are paying the school, and then the client is paying the school for the haircut or the manicure or whatever it is. And so the school is making money off of that student in two different ways, and the student is paying for the privilege of offering their services for free. So it's even it's even worse than than it sounds at at first blush, and so it's small wonder that cosmetology schools are among the biggest proponents of cosmetology licensing. <laughs> um, any other takeaways from from the third edition? You think that people would uh, would like to know and uh, might want to go check out? 
Uh, you know, I think that the trends are really important, but I also think we don't want to overstate them because too many irrationalities remain and too many licenses remain. 2,700 is a lot. A year of education experience uh, mandated by states for low-income occupations that are perfect for people on the lower rungs of the economic ladder. And I think it's important to keep in mind that while we see legislatures starting to chip away at this, they're not going to be able to do the job on their own. Um, it, it's just not feasible because of the power of occupational lobbies. Groups like cosmetology schools, they have a really strong interest in maintaining these barriers and adding new barriers and limiting competition. And they're the ones that can afford to hire professional lobbyists to go down to the state capital, right? Aspiring workers don't do that. Consumers don't do that. And so their interests aren't as well represented. And that's a systematic problem. And one that I imagine is quite familiar to uh, listeners of Short Circuit. It's That's why right. judicial engagement is so important. It's uh, it's public choice 101, as, uh, right. as many of our listeners uh, know about. Well, we will put a link to uh, License to Work 3 in our show notes. So if you're interested in checking it out, uh, listeners, you can uh, you can go there. And it's, an, it's important to remember that um, we, we, in the report survey 102 different occupations that are licensed in at least one state. Um, but there's many other occupations out there that just, you know, they just weren't part of the study. Um, also, one one final question, Lisa, that, um, that, that I forgot to ask is these are about state licenses, right? But there are also municipalities that often license or have an additional layer of license that, that people need to, to worry about. So, um, there, it, it, it's not like you cover absolutely the whole boardwalk because the boardwalk is quite vast. Absolutely, no. That that is very much correct on both of those counts. In many ways, um, what we're looking at is is somewhat of the tip of the ice tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's a lot more licensing out there at other levels of government and among other occupations. Well, one occupation that is uh, not in the in license to work three. Um, is uh, being a lactation consultant, uh, which is an important license, or um, not an important license, an important occupation um, for many women who help new mothers deal with the um, uh, the challenges that come with uh, with a baby and uh, and how breastfeeding doesn't always come so naturally to them. We just had an argument earlier this week in the Georgia Supreme Court by our colleague Renee Flaherty uh, about a challenge to Georgia's incredibly overbearing um, uh, licensing law for uh, lact lactation consultants. It's the only one in the country. And so that is now being considered by the Georgia Supreme Court as to whether the license is constitutional under the Georgia Constitution. Um, we're uh, cautiously optimistic after that argument, and we'll talk about it on short circuit whenever the, the opinion comes out in due course. I, I just want to one real quick before you pivot to my case, Anthony, I, I do, do want to note that regarding this Georgia case, it sort of um, maps pretty well onto a lot of things Lisa was talking about earlier, especially with regard to industry insiders wanting the license. I mean, as Renee put it during her argument on Tuesday, this is a license by 
certified lactation consultants for certified lactation consultants of a, a particular stripe. I mean, there are various certifications. These folks are called IBCLCs, and they've lobbied all across the country to get IBCLCs licensed and to require an IBCLC certification to be a lactation care consultant. And they only really succeeded in Georgia. So that's where this license came from. And in fact, before the case was filed um, and before the law was passed, the Legislative Review Council issued a kind of a finding that there was no public health or safety reason for this to be licensed in the way they were asking it for to be licensed. And yet the legislature adopted it anyways. And so, you know, we ended up suing. Yeah, in fact, that is one of the Sunrise Reviews that I was talking about earlier. Um, that was a, a Sunrise Review that concluded not only is there no need to license lactation consultants and to require these hugely onerous credentials uh, uh, exclusive to one group, the Legislative Review Council actually said it, it's a bad idea because it's going to limit access. It's actually going to reduce care for mothers and babies. So not only is it not needed, but it's a bad idea. And yet the yeah. le legislature did it anyway. The folks who held the certification that lobbied for this licensing were basically, you know, concentrated in kind of urban medical center areas. And the folks who had other certifications, including our clients, are, you know, rural women, often African-American women who are helping mothers, you know, breastfeed. And so there really is a fencing out of precisely the demographics that Lisa was talking about earlier. Well, Josh, now that you've grabbed the microphone, um, I will just let you hold on to it and talk about another occupation that um, was not in the report. Well, actually, two occupations that were not in the report, and that is um, real estate um, folks, uh, people who sell real estate, and then people who manage property in a different way and aren't really the same thing. So take it away. Yeah. And I appreciate you distinguishing between those two because that's what the case is about. I mean, this case is really a microcosm of, I think, a lot of things that Lisa was talking about earlier, possibly with sort of an underline bolded and, and made, you know, in italics. So our client is a woman named Sally Ladd. Sally is a single woman in her mid 60s, um, later 60s now. But we filed, filed the case. She was, you know, 63, 64. Um, she had recently gone through a divorce. She had been laid off after the recession. And she was looking for a way to support herself. And during that time, she was able to buy a couple little vacation cottages, small little homes in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. And she started to, this was about the time Airbnb started to take off, 2012, 2013. And she started to post her properties on those websites and, and get some rental income from that. And she ended up being so good at it that some of her neighbors took notice in the area and said, hey, you know, can you help manage my property as well? Help me get some rentals on Airbnb, VRBO, um, FlipKey, websites, websites like that. And Sally, notably, you know, doesn't live in Pennsylvania and didn't at the time. She actually lived about an hour, hour and a half away in New Jersey. Um, so she was able to manage all of these rentals from her home, as she likes to say, in her PJs, at her kitchen table, just on her laptop. And um, she ended up making a pretty good good living um, doing this for, for two, three years until she got a call from a, um, an investigator with the Pennsylvania Department of Bureau and Profession sorry, Pennsylvania Bureau of Professional and Occupational Affairs, which is, like, is a very sort of Soviet style name for a, for, <laughs> for a bureau, right? But this investigator called her and said, "Hey, um, you know, you're under investigation for the unlicensed practice of real estate." 
And so, you know, you have to stop, right? And so Sally uh, took a look at the licensing law in Pennsylvania and said, hey, you know, maybe if I can get this license pretty easily, I can continue doing this and determined that she could not get the license very easily. Um, the requirements, I mean, to run through it, it was a lot of the things that Lisa covered, but just sort of multiple X. So she would have to um, take 315 hours of courses uh, on traditional real estate practice, like buying and selling homes and managing you know, commercial properties and things like that. She would have to do a three-year apprenticeship in the state of Pennsylvania where she doesn't live, um, working for a licensed broker, who again is doing things like buying and selling houses that Sally does not do. Uh, and then she would have to open a brick and mortar office in Pennsylvania, uh, which is gonna cost her a lot of money. And again, she doesn't need the office because she's working online from her home in a different state. And so she looked at all this and said, you know what, like, I cannot possibly meet these requirements. It doesn't make sense for me to try to continue to put my life on hold for three years just to keep this business going. And so she she had to shut down and she pivoted um, because she's an entrepreneurial person. But, you know, she wanted to keep running this business. And so in 2017, we filed a lawsuit um, under the Pennsylvania Constitution and the argument was pretty simple. It was even if Pennsylvania can license real estate brokers consistent with the state constitution's um, restrictions on the state police power, uh, the power to regulate for the public health and safety, it cannot require this woman to get this license to do this work. Um, that's 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 excessive. Was our argument, and you know we had some tough sailing at first um, in 2018. The first sign that things were going to be tough was we we filed a discovery motion. Um, the state was refusing to produce documents or answer questions in our case in discovery um, on the theory that under the rational basis test, which our, our listeners will be familiar with, facts don't matter at all. And so we don't get to have discovery. Yeah, who and cares about discovery? Just make it up. Right. And so you had a you actually had a Pennsylvania judge um, say, you know what, that's correct. And, and deny us discovery at that point on the theory that under the rational basis test in Pennsylvania, facts don't matter. And so um, that was kind of a sign, to, sign of things to come at first, because we made our way to the Pennsylvania Commonwealth Courts um, on a motion to dismiss. And the court dismissed our case on the theory that because real estate broker licensing in general is rational. It doesn't matter if it's burdensome for our client or irrational in this particular case. It's generally rational. And that's all the legislature really needs to kind of rubber stamp um, its law in all of its applications, right? So we filed an appeal to the state Supreme Court. And, you know, happily, they reversed. And what they did was they said the, the right to earn a living in Pennsylvania is undeniably important. That's a pulled quote from the, the opinion. And they said, rather than applying the federal rational basis test, which is which sort of make facts up approach, very deferential to the government, we're going to apply a two-part kind of heightened test, one that, that requires the government uh, when it passes a law. The law has to have a real and substantial relationship to a legitimate governmental interest, right, like protecting public health or safety, preventing fraud, that kind of thing. And it cannot be unduly oppressive or patently unnecessary. And that language, patently unnecessary, ended up being very important in our case. So the court remanded and said, you know what? The allegations in our complaint did state a claim. We, we could possibly win this case. And uh, over the summer, we had a trial um, in, in an economic liberty case, right? And so what, what, what's the premise of a trial? It's that facts matter. So we had two days of testimony. We had exhibits introduced. We had live witnesses. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, on October 31st, so just a few weeks ago, the court issued a pretty amazing opinion 
um, holding that based on all the facts and all the evidence, the license was uh, unduly oppressive and patently unnecessary in Sally's case. And so the state has chosen not to appeal that determination, which means after, you know, five, six years of litigation, Sally has has won her case. Now, I want to tie um, all of this back to some of the stuff that Lisa covered. So uh, start with the real estate license itself. This is a law that was passed in 1929 originally, and the definition of real estate practice hasn't changed in, in basically over 100, almost 100 years. And it was lobbied for by industry insiders in Pennsylvania who wanted to fence out actually out of state folks. And so that's where the office requirement came from. It was, we don't want folks in other states to be able to practice in our state. <laughs> and so, you know, this was a case of now the legislature recodified and slightly modernized the law in 1980. But we're talking about a law that was really designed and, and implemented, you know, decades and decades before the Internet even existed and about a century before Airbnb even existed. So what my client Sally, you know, was doing was just not in the minds of any legislator when they were adopting this incredibly broad real estate licensing law. And, you know, Lisa mentioned that a lot of the costs of licensing are hidden. Well, that ended up being pretty compelling to the to the court in our case. So um, let me just run through a few of them. So the court found it pretty compelling that Sally would have to spend over three years of her life working for somebody else. And this is not an apprenticeship that, you know, where she would learn the trade she was practicing before. It was an entirely different trade she would become familiar with if she was working for brokers for three years. Um, you know, the typical fee splitting when you're working for a broker is about 50-50. So, you know, her income is going to be cut in half during this three-year period. Uh, Out-of-pocket costs to pay for the schooling and the exams and that kind of stuff. Um, over $4,000 out-of-pocket for Sally. And then on top of all that, the cost to open a, a, an office in the state, we had a broker testify who said it costs him about $1,000 to $1,500 a month to afford his office. And so Sally's like, look, it, my profit margin was basically that, right? So if I have to have an office, I, I don't have a business. Um, so you're fencing out people like Sally who, who want to operate online, which, and I think in a post-COVID world, I mean, things like this become more and more rational, right? Um, but let me just read you kind of how the court wrapped up its its opinion, because it's the trial court decision is really um, quite amazing in the context of kind of economic liberty litigation more broadly. You don't see this sort of thing very often. So the court says, um, as fully detailed above in its opinion, uh, the broker licensing requirements of hundreds of hours of real estate coursework, a three-year apprenticeship, and the broker examination are all minimally related at best to lad short-term property management services. Railroad's requirements are well beyond the necessities of this case, and forcing LAD to comply with them in no way advances the General Assembly's goal of public protection. And so the court held they're unconstitutional as applied to Sally. And I'll sort of stop there, but that's um, really, I think this is a perfect example of even though we, we covered 102 occupations in License to Work 3, um, there are other licenses out there that are that are in certain cases even more burdensome and, and just as irrational as some of the barriers that we see in License to Work. And often those licenses, like the one you, you have, Josh, they're, they're not even licenses that were intended for that occupation because that occupation either didn't exist or is just totally outside of what the legislature was trying to do. And yet they are applied um, by the, uh, the the bureaucrats who administer them to this other occupation and um, and fence those people out. That's right. I mean, I think the judge actually was was compelled by this at trial because 
you know, she asked about, you know, if I apply the test that the Supreme Court has said to apply, and I really do kind of scrutinize the application of this law to your client, am I second guessing the will of the legislature? Yeah, on the one hand, the answer to that is yes, because the Constitution does place limits on the legislature's cons uh, discretion, right? But the simpler answer to that than that even is just that the legislature could not have possibly contemplated this style of work when it was enacting either the 1929 version of the law or the 1980 version of the law. And so this is really just sort of a situation of, of legislative oversight um, that results in, in pretty heavy burdens on entrepreneurs like Sally. And if the legislature worked like we all wish it would work and actually responded to, you know, what what's going on out there, they would have updated the law. And yet they don't because of uh, things like uh, public choice that uh, that Lisa educated us about earlier. Um, and so I think this really hammers home the need for um, judicial engagement to take the Constitution when the legislature fails to uh, to protect those rights. Um and uh, enforce the right to earn a living. So, um, well, thank you both for working with me today and banging the drum for the right to earn a living. Um, I, I uh, appreciate that uh, you came on and uh, best of luck in, you know, what, whether it's licensed to work for or, you know, the, the, next, uh, uh, the next licensing case, um, wish you all the best. Thank you both. Thank you guys. Yep, and fingers crossed for Georgia. Uh, fingers crossed for Bo Georgia. We're going to bang the drum all day, as uh, Todd Rundgren uh, said, and as they, they always play when the uh, Green Bay Packers uh, score a touchdown. Um, uh, not as much recently, unfortunately, but uh, we'll, there's always, uh, of course, we'll be next season. Um, and in the meantime, I want to thank my guests once again for coming on here, talking about license to work. For the rest of you, I hope you all... Um, get to work and bang the drums that you need to bang on. But also, I hope all of you get engaged. Mm -hmm.